News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This is new. I mean, I know people are experimenting with all different kinds of beer and the flavors that you can make and the things that you can do, but this this next story is still a little bit different. It involves a water recycling company in California, and they have partnered with a brewery to create Epic One Water Brew. And yes, it's very unique because they are using wastewater to make their beer. Yes, yes, you absolutely heard that right. Joining us now to tell us all about it is Aaron Tartakovsky, who's Epic Cleantech's co-founder and CEO. Aaron, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Aaron, why wastewater? That's a great question, and, and I love the intro song, by the way. You know, water is this really interesting thing. It's omnipresent in our lives. It literally touches everything, but we know very little about how it works, how it gets to our, our, our homes. And when we looked around, we said, look, buildings use 14% of all potable water on the planet. Almost no buildings reuse that water. So let's change that. And that's what our company does is we help buildings to recycle their so-called wastewater, which is water from showers, from laundry, from sinks. We treat that water to exceptionally high standards, and then we reuse it in the building. And so we thought one fun way to get the word out was to, as you noted, make beer. How does this taste? Well, we think it tastes fantastic, but you don't have to take <laughs> our word for it. We've, uh, we've served about 4,000 already, uh, including at one of the biggest green building conferences in the world. And, you know, I think if we didn't tell people the source of the water, uh, you would have no idea. And we actually did some blind tastes of our beer against other sort of very well-known commercial brands. And I'm, I'm happy to report that we actually beat uh, a few of these top brands. Okay, well, here's the thing. I was gonna, well, top brands, I can understand that because these days beer is all about craft beer, right? Artisan beer. Do you think you can go head to head with those? I think we can. I, I think we can. And, and, and again, we kind of have. So what we did was, you know, what our technology does is we, we're going into these big buildings, these high rises, these communities taking what is called wastewater, which, by the way, is a horrible term. It needs a rebrand. Because really wastewater is. is just water. Yeah, look, we can all water on this planet is recycled water. And so what we're just doing is using technology to actually recycle it in a more of a, a closed loop uh, setting. And so what we did was we took this highly purified water, we partnered with a local award winning uh, beer maker. And we just said, look, here's the water, you tell us exactly what it needs to look like. And we basically gave them a blank canvas. And then they added in their premium ingredients made this amazing, crisp Kolsch style ale. And uh, we've had a, a really good time just selling it, to, or sorry, let me rephrase that, not selling it, we can't legally sell it, but giving it uh, to all sorts of different folks. And it's been a, a great, a great tool for us. Okay, why can't you legally sell it? So right now, the, the regulations around selling a recycled water product um, are just a little complicated, a little murky, and we didn't really want to deal with that. This was not a commercial endeavor for us. This was a tool. We wanted to showcase the untapped potential of water reuse, show people just how just how sort of robust these technologies are. And, you know, look, we, we use technology and we trust technology for a lot of things, to fly our planes, to make the medicines we put in our bodies every day, to drive the, the you know, the driverless vehicles that are now taking over our streets. So we wanted to showcase just how uh, sort of amazing these technologies are. And we thought, you know, uh, making a beer for educational purposes was a good way to do that. 
I love that. I'm, I'm not sure many people can say they do that, making a beer for educational purposes. <laughs> um, let me ask you, the, the process by which the water is recycled, how extensive is that? Like how much energy is, is used for that? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, one of my co-founders is actually my father. Uh, and my father originally trained in the Soviet space program. And as he often says, you know, what do you think the astronauts are drinking in space? We've had these technologies to produce recycled water for decades, uh, but it's about tailoring them to the, the specific application. So what we're doing is we're using these advanced treatment processes um, where we're basically taking this so-called gray water, which is again from showers, from laundry, and from bathroom sinks, and we're using both biology and membranes with, which have little pore sizes that are one one thousandth diameter of the human hair. So basically really, really micro, micro size holes between those two steps, you get to a super high quality water and then we disinfect it. We use ultraviolet light, we use chlorine to basically mimic exactly what's gonna come out of your tap. So again, you would have no idea whether it was water coming from the city tap or whether it was coming from us. And that's, that's the key, is that there's gonna be no change in how these people who live in our buildings uh, live their lives. Okay, do you see this as the beginning of something here, Aaron? Do you see this as if you can convince people to drink it as beer, you can convince them to just drink it, period? Uh, so 100% yes. And and I think, you know, what we're more focused on rather than beer is, is this whole concept of what we call on-site water reuse. So in San Francisco, where we're headquartered, all new large buildings have to have to have these on-site water recycling systems and pretty common sense. I mean, we're in the middle of these, you know, 1200 year droughts in California. Why are we using fresh drinking water to flush our toilets when we can be using recycled water sources? And so, you know, we, we see what's now happening is kind of a a water reuse revolution where more cities and more states and more countries are starting to rethink how we've designed our water and wastewater infrastructure for 200 years. I mean, I think one really easy way to think about this is what rooftop solar did for energy of moving away from big, complicated, expensive infrastructure to smaller distributed. We're trying to do that for water. We're just 15 years behind and, and I'm happy to report that we're actually working with some of the largest Canadian real estate developers uh, right now. Oh, uh, to do what? To have that technology put into buildings here? Absolutely. Yeah, we're actually one of the companies we're working with is uh, West Bank, um, who I know does a lot of really great projects throughout Canada and also in the United States. So we're actually putting some of our systems into their new projects. That's interesting. So I'm also, you know, fascinated by that the California, which we all know about the droughts that are happening there, hasn't already moved to this kind of technology. You know, I think with something like water and wastewater, it's it's such a entrenched industry. It's so regulatory heavy that that change takes time. You know, I think unlike a, a software app where you can just release it on the app store and then make updates to it, when you're dealing with water, you're dealing with public health and protecting public health. The change takes more time. Uh, it's slower and more incremental. But what I will say is that we are seeing just an absolute shift in the industry of if we continue to just do this, things the same way that we have been for the last 200 years, we're never going to keep up with you know, aging infrastructure, urban population growth, you know, the rate at which we are adding new buildings globally to our sort of global building stock is like building a new New York City every single month from now until 2060. So we just have to change. And very excitingly, it's, it's happening in California. And, and frankly, it's happening in Canada. And I think, you know, the future of green buildings is really being led um, in North America broadly. So the way to do that, then the way to convince people is to say, here, try this beer. Is that it? <laughs> I, it's it's a very helpful learning tool for sure. And I think it's, look, the, the, the beer, as I said, was not a commercial effort. 
it was a demonstration project. And what it allows us to do is to have a conversation. You know, you come, you try our beer or you read about the beer and then all of a sudden you start to understand, wow, we have these technologies that can do this, that can do this within a building. And then that's, that's kind of, which is our, our novel way of uh, amplifying the water story. Well, I think it's fascinating. I, you know what? I think you could absolutely sell people because, yeah, they'll take the free beer and then it'll make them think about it too. Aaron, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate your time. That's Aaron Tartakovsky, who's Epic Cleantech's co-founder and CEO. They're a water recycling company. They're based in California and they partnered up with a local brewery down there. And so they took their wastewater, recycled water, totally purified water that they essentially recycled and turned it into beer. They call it the Epic One Water Brew. They had to give it away because they couldn't sell it. But they said, if people try this and they realize that this is what you can do with recycled water, then the sky is the limit that we should be looking at the way we use our water completely differently. I think that's a great idea. This is Mornings with Simi. And the last year has seen a lot of changes at BC Housing, as we were just talking about with Von Palmer, and clearly, rightly so. A forensic investigation released yesterday showed conflicts of interest and mismanagement with the former head of BC Housing, the CEO, and his wife, the head of Atira Women's Resource Society. That was an organization that was getting, is getting, a lot of money from BC Housing, and at the time, without all the rules being followed. Now, it's the reason why the entire board at BC housing was replaced about a year ago. The independent investigation has identified 20 recommendations to make sure this doesn't happen again. So are those rules in place? And what happens now? Joining us now to talk about the changes that are being made is the board chair of BC Housing, Alan Seckel. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Now, you were part of the new board that was announced last summer. What was your mandate when you were brought in? What do you see as your role there? Well, you have to recall that at the time we were appointed, shortly before that, the government had released another report by Ernst & Young, which outlined some operational and managerial changes that needed to occur and governance changes that needed to occur. And so the mandate we were given was to ensure that that report um, was implemented in a timely manner. And when did you realize that there was a continuing problem at the organization? Well, if you mean the conflict of interest uh, allegations, mm-hmm. that ha- that came up um, within the day or two of me becoming the chair. I was informed that the investigation had commenced. And so what role, like what, what did you do at that point in order to deal with this situation? What kind of changes were made? Well, first of all, the first thing we did was ensure that uh, I issued a, a, a directive to to the staff that they were to fully cooperate with the investigation, ensured that there was a person within the organization to be the point person between the investigators and and the and BC Housing, uh, someone who would uh, was uh, if I could put it this way, neutral and not involved in any of the allegations, and uh, uh, designed to ensure that there was a full cooperation and full disclosure of any information that uh, was required by Ernst and Young on behalf of the Controller General. And so after that was done, after you put those rules in place and issued that, did you find that that was still not being followed? I don't have a concern that it was being followed. It it probably took a week or two to internalize in part because, to be fair, people were on vacation. But um, uh, you have to keep in mind that uh, we started to see some changes in in the senior management and through the month through the month of August. And uh, once the uh, investigation got up and running, I didn't have any concerns that uh, people within BC Housing weren't cooperating 
fully, uh, with the exception perhaps of some of the things mentioned in the report. Do you feel that changes have been made at BC Housing? Like, are you confident that this kind of situation would not be happening again? Um, I'm confident that it's not going to happen again, in part because, first of all, I do want to shout out to all of the people that are still at BC Housing because they're extremely dedicated and concerned about providing the best housing options, particularly for people who, uh, who need assistance in British Columbia. So I think they're all very, very dedicated towards that. I think we have a new leadership in place uh, with the new CEO. We're uh, about to hire a new CFO after uh, we had an interim CFO for, for a short time. We're bringing in an office of chief legal counsel. Uh, we've revitalized our whistleblower. Uh, we've created a whistleblower policy and revitalized our conflict of interest policy. We're requiring annual sign-off now on the uh, on the conflict of interest policy. Um and I think we've got a group that's dedicated to ensuring that this type of uh, these events don't occur again. Yeah, there were 20 recommendations in that report that we are discussing this morning. How how far along is the implementation of those 20 recommendations? Well, you know, it's sometimes a little bit hard to be specific because if you go back to the report I mentioned earlier, the Ernst & Young report in, of June last year, many of the things addressed in that report, had they had, once they're implemented, would prevent and would subsume or, or overtake some of the more specific in, uh, uh, things that are in, in, the, uh, in the list of 20. But I think we're well on our way on, uh, on all of the 20, and uh, we're dedicated to making sure that we implement each and every one of them in short order. Now, clearly from the report, some of the situations described there, I mean, money was being directed to Atira at the whim of a text message from the CEO of BC Housing. How do you make sure that doesn't happen again? Well, we've, we've issued a directive to everyone that uh, no decisions can be made by a text message, that anything that is uh, in the nature of a decision has to be done in a more formal manner so that there is an adequate record of that going into the future. It just seems hard to believe, I think, Mr. Suckle, for a lot of people that that was actually being done at an organization the size of BC Housing. Like, how can you make decisions via text message? Yes, it, uh, it, uh, I totally understand that. Clearly, uh, you know, things could have been done in a better way in terms of, of documenting things. I do, you know, I think it is a testament to a certain degree of the degree to which people want to make decisions quickly to, to the benefit of people who are homeless. But nevertheless, that's not an acceptable uh, practice for a large organization that's responsible for so much taxpayers' money, and we're just going to make sure that doesn't occur in the future. Okay. What do you say then to, you know, people in BC who've been reading about this and are actually quite shocked at, at some of the things that they are finding in this report? What do you say about BC housing at this point? Well, I'd say clearly we could have done better and should have done better in the past, and uh, we're, uh, you know, it's our, we're going to do better in the future. We're going to implement all of the things that uh, I've mentioned a, a few moments ago uh, with, you know, standards of conduct and whistleblower policy, we're going to make sure that we have the right staff and the right team in place. We're going to come up with the right pr- pr- processes and procedures. We're going to have the right oversight at a board level. We're going to do all the things that are part of uh, good governance of, of a corporation, whether it's a crown corporation or any corporation. How important is that whistleblower protection there? Because have you heard from employees who say that they wanted to say something and they were unable to do so? Uh, what I've heard is that there was, and this is referred to in the report, is that there was a culture within the organization where you perhaps would you know, bury your concerns uh, at, at, from time to time. And so what we need to do is ensure that that culture changes and the whistleblower policy is just one part of, a, of, of a tools to, to change that culture. It's also... Uh, important that leadership from top to bottom of the organization embraces that culture of, of, of accountability. 
Does the board feel, do you still have confidence in Atira's ability to deliver housing? Uh, you know, Atira, like many uh, not-for-profits, uh, deliver really important services to British Columbians. And I have every confidence that uh, the nonprofit sector will continue to do so. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Appreciate that. That's Alan Seckel, who is the board chair of BC Housing. He was appointed last July after the previous board was removed by then Housing Minister David Eby. And now we know why, right? We know why that previous board was removed, because the housing minister asked for action to deal with the CEO at the time, Shane Ramsey, and with these clear conflicts of interest and mismanagement that was happening. The previous board declined to do that. And so that board was removed. New board brought in. Alan Seckel is the chair of the new board of BC Housing. They aim to address all of the 20 recommendations, as you heard him say, from this report. Uh, That's a process that is ongoing. The whistleblower stuff is absolutely imperative to get in there, right? When you've got something as brazen going on as what was happening at BC Housing and there was a culture as Alan Seckle just said there, of people feeling like they couldn't say anything and they just had to roll with this. That is unacceptable when you're talking about public money that is being used there, really any money that is being used. You're making huge decisions, million-dollar decisions by a text message and then deleting those text messages. Uh, That is just unacceptable by any stretch of the imagination, right? So obviously we still have some more questions about this, about, you know, why weren't we told about this a year ago when it first came up? Like if you were replacing the board, you knew there was a problem. Why not say that a year ago? Well, Premier David Eby, who was the housing minister making those decisions, will be joining us coming up just after the 7.30 news to talk more about that. This is Mornings with Simi. Just when you thought it was safe to try and travel by airplane again. I know Canadians are gearing up for summer travel, but now there are warnings about a possible summer of chaos. Why? Well, it feels as though the airline industry has barely recovered from the problems we saw over winter with the weather and scheduling problems. So is that what is happening now? Let's find out. Joining us now is David Gillen, Transportation Business Professor at the University of British Columbia. David, thank you for joining us. Good morning. What should we be bracing ourselves for now? Um, I, I think uncertainty is, is probably the biggest thing. Um, I, I'm not sure that we'll necessarily see the degree of chaos that we saw last summer, nor the same reasons for that chaos either. But I still think that there are going to be instances in which there are going to be kind of significant delays. Um, and I, the reason I say that is because Right now, um, we, we, they hired a number of people at the airports and in the airlines, but you have to keep in mind is, is that these are all inexperienced people. And the, and the aviation supply chain is, is a well-oiled process. And uh, it, when you think about the number of processes that have to take place when you move from sitting in your chair in your kitchen having a cup of coffee to sitting in your seat on the airplane, there are numerous ones and they have to be coordinated in some way and they are supplied by different agencies um, or institutions or employers from federal government to the airport to the airlines to third parties. And that's where with the new hires, it's all well and good to have more bodies. But if those bodies are not experienced and have they have no sense of what the coordination that's required then their ability to to meet demands that are going to be put in place by the uh, summer schedules 
is going to be really challenging. Right. So summer schedules mean more travel, more flights, right? More planes in the air. But are there enough people to fly all these planes? That's that's an interesting question. Um, certainly there is a pilot shortage and it is going to get worse rather than better, I think, um, simply because of the number of pilots who are um, wanting to retire. And it's I think it's part of the demographics that's that's happening, and that's happening in both the U.S. as well as in Canada. When we look at the expansion in the number of uh, the size of fleets of the different airlines and the increase in the number of airlines, you know, Flair and Lynx have entered the Canadian airspace. And for each air aircraft that an airline buys, it takes seven flight crew and cabin crew to ensure that that aircraft goes through sufficient number of block hours that it's going to make money for the airline. So if you, if, if Air, Air Canada, for example, brings on three or four new 787s, which is generally used for international work, um, it requires you know, 14 to 18 new pilots. And it's difficult to find those people. And we know that the um, the, the classes, the recruiting classes are relatively full for the airlines, but the people they're bringing in are relatively inexperienced that prior to the pandemic, um, pilots applying for to the airlines were they had at least air transport ratings. And now there are people coming in who have been flying Cessna 172s for 200 hours. And so the, the consequence of that is, is the washout rates are extraordinarily high. Whereas they used to be maybe thirty to forty percent, they're now up around eighty to ninety percent. Oh wow! Okay, so what you're telling us then here, David, is we need to brace ourselves, like be prepared. Probably always buy travel insurance. Oh, certainly buy travel insurance for sure. Uh, but the other is, is is to simply have an attitude that says there are likely to going to be some hiccups, and we should be prepared for that. It should not be a surprise. And I think that that will help people get through um, their, their flights. And, and, I, and I must say that I have been flying probably on five or six different flights between oh, late February up until a, a couple of weeks ago. And I've had no difficulty whatsoever. However, I will say that every flight I've been on has been 100% full. Wow. And that has been challenging. And that will continue for sure. Um, and largely because of that, simply the substantial demand for, for travel that we're seeing, much more than what we had anticipated prior to the end of the pandemic. And we're just going to see more of it. David, thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Appreciate that. David Gillen is a transportation business professor at the University of British Columbia. Pilot shortages, labor demand, increasing consumer demand. Brace yourself if you're going to be flying at some point this summer or you're thinking about it. This is Mornings with Simi. We now know why the board of BC Housing was removed and replaced a year ago. As a result of a forensic investigation, we know that there were serious conflicts of interest involving the CEO of BC Housing, despite rules supposedly being in place to prevent all of that. Now, a year ago, the minister in charge of BC Housing was now Premier David Eby, and he joins us to talk about the investigation and what has happened. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So when did you first realize this is going to be a continuing problem? Because it is a continuing problem, right? There's more to come on this? Yeah, there, there is more to come. Uh, we are uh, in the middle of the work, I guess, is how I would describe it. BC Housing's in a better place. 
they have a new board, a new CEO, a new acting CFO, uh, and uh, they're focused on our goal of delivering housing, and they're delivering housing faster and more of it. Uh, the challenge uh, remains with Atira, uh, which is the other part of this story. Uh, and uh, the, the big piece, obviously, is uh, our need to have a full picture of the financial situation at Atira. I'm glad to see that they're agreeing to uh, open their books and allow government in to have a full review through third parties to be able to have that assurance. Um, but anyone reading that report knows that things have to change over there. Uh, when you enter into agreements with government to do certain things and not do other things, you got to honor those agreements. You got to follow those rules, and that's uh, that's not what happened. And so uh, I'm a little disturbed to see uh, their press release uh, today that uh, that says that things don't need to change because uh, they do. Do you wish that you had acted sooner in your role when you were the housing minister? Well, you know, it's uh, it was one of the first uh, things I did was direct a review of BC housing. Uh, when I came on, there were uh, uh, some challenges, frankly, between uh, BC housing feeling that at the time, the senior administration feeling that the demands from government for particular accounts were too bureaucratic, were slowing things down. Uh, from the government side, there was concern that BC housing wasn't adequately prepared with the information government needed. Uh, and... Uh, the need for a review was very obvious to me. There was also the issue of the Little Mountain uh, development where the previous government had uh, sold off some social housing to a private developer and the affordable housing that had been promised hadn't been delivered for about a decade. And, and when I finally uh, had a chance to review that contract, I, I saw there were no safeguards in place and I worried that there wasn't anything that would prevent our government from being in a similar uh, situation, although obviously for different policy reasons. And so for all those reasons I brought in the third-party review, I, I'll, I'll speak candidly. I certainly never expected the briefing that I got after they were done the review, which was that there was a systematic and large-scale effort by the then CEO to avoid the conflict of interest rules and direct contracts to his wife's firm. Uh, that was uh, certainly a profound concern to me and led to the forensic investigation that we're talking about right now. Why not then say all this a year ago when you removed the BC Housing Board? You said it was just a time for change, but why not talk about this then? Uh, when I was, so there are two reports. The first report um, was the one that uncovered the information from BC Housing senior employees and the text messages and so on that led to the forensic investigation. And this is the time period we're talking about. Uh, when I was briefed uh, by Ernst & Young, uh, through the public service about th these concerns, I was told that confidentiality was critically important. And the reason for that was uh, their recommendation was a forensic investigation uh, to a standard that we could rely on their findings. Uh, the Comptroller General's office within government was involved. The work was assembling a team in Toronto, a forensic team that specializes in this kind of investigative work to come and seize phones, uh, laptops, uh, mirror databases, preserve documents. And uh, I was told confidentiality was important to ensure that those records would be available. And in fact, uh, some of those concerns turned out to be grounded uh, as the investigators found that text messages had been deleted by both the CEO and the CFO, despite clear instructions uh, not to. Uh, in terms of the board itself, uh, there was a lot of speculation that I had removed the board because the board members themselves had done something wrong. Uh, that they had been fired in most people's understanding. When you're fired, it's because you did something wrong. 
These are hardworking uh, people, experts in housing. There was a gap between me and the board in terms of how uh, serious we felt the information was. I thought the CEO needed to be removed, uh, either fired or placed on leave. They felt the information was too preliminary. Uh, people of good faith can have disagreements about that. But there was, I just want to underline that there was no wrongdoing on the part of those board members. Uh, and uh, it, we did need a board, though, to come in and do some heavy lifting around restructuring BC Housing, getting them back on track. Do you think they're getting back on track? Yeah, we've had the new board in place now for almost a year. Uh, key recommendations from the uh, investigations and reports have been implemented. Others are underway. Uh, BC Housing has more housing uh, opening up faster. Uh, they're delivering uh, for British Columbians in the way that we expect and uh, in compliance with the rules, uh, which is absolutely <laughs> what needs to happen. Uh, and so they're in a better place. I, uh, I am concerned uh, that Atira is not quite there yet. Uh, we are uh, going to have to do significant more work uh, with them. But um, with that said, I just want to send a message to those people who are in Atira managed buildings that, uh, that may be listening. You know, your housing is not at risk. Government will make sure uh, that you are protected through this process to so the staff, the frontline staff at Atira that are delivering services. We need you to keep delivering those services. Um, but we have, of course, uh, uh, frozen any new programs or uh, funding for Atira until uh, we're in a place where we're satisfied with where that organization is. Well, what does that look like? Will you be asking for changes at the top of Atira? Yeah, the, uh, we've communicated as government uh, and the BC Housing Board uh, to Atira, our belief that there is a need for a change in leadership at Atira because of, frankly, uh, the disappointing response to what certainly I see as a crisis of government confidence in that organization um, and their willingness to follow the basic rules of the agreements that they enter into with us. Um, and uh, unfortunately, their press release uh, does not inspire confidence in me that that shift has taken place. In fact, it says that uh, that they have total confidence in how things have been going at Atira. Um, anyone reading the report would not have that confidence. They, anyone reading the report uh, would believe that things have to change over there. And so uh, our key work is uh, uh, they have committed to opening their books so that government uh, can come in, uh, do that extensive uh, auditing work uh, to make sure we're tracking every single dollar. Uh, and uh, we're going to do that work and, uh, and continue to um, uh, this freeze on any additional programs uh, for them uh, and uh, the inspections and the compliance audits of their programs uh, until we're satisfied with what's happening over there. What do you say to people who say, you know what, government should have done something sooner, this should have been obvious this was happening, that, they're, that the government wasn't on top of this? Well, uh, you know, I, I have some empathy uh, for that perspective. I think there's a responsibility on the part of government uh, generally uh, to ensure that the rules are being followed and, and we took the steps necessary for that to happen. Anytime this, something like this happens within government, I know it's a blow to public confidence. Uh, and the only way to restore that confidence is to um, be as transparent as possible about what we know about the steps that we're taking and how we're moving forward, which is why, you know, for the first time in 30 years, uh, we used a, a section of the law that allows us to release uh, forensic investigation report like this in its entirety uh, so that people can read the full report, they can understand everything that we do, that there aren't big pages blacked out or something like that. 
Uh, and that's an important part of restoring this trust. Uh, and uh, we know uh, that uh, housing is critically important. This is a crisis uh, being faced across the province. We can't slow down. We have to uh, continue doing this work. Yesterday, a difficult day, but part of that work. Because uh, while we desperately need housing, we also need it to be delivered in a way that uh, where people who are delivering it are following the rules, are uh, being transparent about their work. And that is not what was happening in BC Housing. Premier Eby, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know the Canadian government has now declared a Chinese diplomat, Zhao Wei, as persona non grata, expelled him from the country. And in retaliation for that, China has also announced the expulsion of a Canadian diplomat today. So what is going on here? Well, Zhao Wei was expelled due to his alleged involvement in a plot to intimidate Conservative MP Michael Chong and his family in Hong Kong. That is according to a statement from Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Let's find out more about this now. What is going on? Will there be more retaliation for this? Charles Burden is with us now, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and former staff member of the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. It's good to talk to you. What do you make of what's happened here so far? Well, uh, you know, I, the, the Canadian government gave the Chinese authorities lots of warning that Mr. Zhao was going to have to go. I mean, you know, once the Globe and Mail outed him as an agent of Chinese Ministry of State Security operating with diplomatic cover out of the Chinese consulate in Toronto, there's no way that, you know, we'd be able to allow him to continue his his uh, menacing and harassing and espionage work. Um, China could have diffused the issue by just gracefully withdrawing Mr. Zhao back to Beijing, but it looks like China is priming for a confrontation with us by waiting until he was declared persona non grata and expelling him. China has so far done, you know, the expected thing, which is to commensurately expel a middle-level consul out of our consulate in Shanghai. Perfectly reasonable, but they're threatening more, and this is very concerning. I think, you know, the way that regime functions, they, they're not going to just allow this matter to pass. They're going to want to inflict um, economic costs on Canada and could even do some, you know, nasty things to Canadians resident in China to send out a signal to other countries that if you interfere with China's espionage, menacing and harassing operations in your country, that costs will be extracted that being said, I don't think that this is going to go over well in Canada. And I'd really, if I was working for China, I would tell them to just leave it with the expulsion of the single Canadian diplomat. But they don't listen to me. <laughs> well, I'm not sure who they actually listen to, because as you said, they could have just left it there knowing what we already know, but they chose not to do that. So if you are a Canadian in China, should you not be a little worried at this point? Oh, yes. I think that, you know, Canada should issue a travel advisory. It is dangerous. You know, there is the possibility of arbitrary arrest or being refused exit from China because they say, you know, there's some court case that may come up against you or these other things that that are designed to to intimidate us into complying with what China wants. And, you know, when serious reports come out of CSIS exposed in the Globe and Mail, we gather that they went to the central levels of government and, you know, our government people decide to stuff them in the back of a of a drawer and not act on them. So 
you know, from that point of view, China's been quite successful up to now. Um, and I think that there are a lot of vested interests in the political and business classes in Canada that would like to maintain the status quo of relations with China. But I think for, you know, Canadians listening to this program and for much of Parliament, there is a notion that we simply cannot tolerate illegal activities by Chinese diplomats in Canada. And that includes menacing and harassing of people here of Hong Kong origin, Uyghur origin, Tibetan origin, and so on. And when they decided to try and intimidate a member of the Canadian Parliament by threatening to to do bad things to his family back in China, the China really crossed a red line. And you know, Canadians just aren't going to aren't going to sit idly by and let them do this anymore. That's the thing that gets me about this is that it. it, it this really crossed the line, and they really didn't seem to care about the consequences, did they? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I think that they, they underestimate us in terms of how weak we are. I mean, certainly, I think they made a big mistake when they decided to throw Kovrick and Favor into prison hell and throw away the key for three years. You know, they they didn't think that our newspapers would be counting down the days of incarceration on the front page. You know, they don't understand that that Canadians want to stand together and and that we are not going to let an autocratic, a frankly thuggish regime intimidate us. So, you know, I think with, with regard to Mr. Chong, I think they thought that, that the government would simply just let it go, as evidently the government did for the two years that the report from thesis went into the National Security Advisor of the Prime Minister, and many other elements of the government. And when it became publicly known, when when some uh, agent in Canada's national security hierarchy decided he just couldn't abide by his commitment to state secrecy and, and decided to somehow or other get it to uh, Steve Chase and Robert Fife, and the rest is history. We heard about it, and you know, uh, outrage broke out in Parliament as a consequence. And so where do you think the government is at now, Charles, in terms of, okay, we did this. Uh, it should also be bracing, I guess, for more. But clearly the cat's kind of out of the bag here, right? Like we cannot allow this to continue. No, I think, you know, um, our political debate in Parliament is basically all about China. It's going to be all about China in question period today, I'm pretty sure. The Procedures and House Affairs is having not one, but two two-hour sessions on foreign influence. And the Ethics Committee of the House of Commons is also doing a study on foreign influence, not to speak of the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations. Um, you know, this is not going to stop until something happens that suggests that we're going to do a genuine reset with China. The government has been really not acting very vigorously on this um, foreign agents registry, which is to require that people who are involved in the policy process should publicly declare if they're recipients of money or benefits from a foreign state. And we're also moving slowly on this Indo-Pacific policy, which we announced last November, which China also doesn't like. I think that all of these things are about to change. And really, you know, there should be some ministerial responsibility for for not acting on a two-year-old, very serious uh, uh, report from intelligence. You know, the, the Minister of Public Security or the Prime Minister under the Westminster system, regardless of whether 
they saw the report and ignored it themselves or not. The fact is that their ministry has has made very, very serious errors in judgment, and, um, you know, they should take responsibility. And I, I think it even gets to the point of, of resignation would be the appropriate way to, to, uh, to, to show that we really are taking this very seriously. Charles, have you ever seen a situation like this before? Do you think this is a, a bit of a tipping point in terms of realizing what's going on here? I think absolutely it is. And, you know, we can look to Australia and the UK who are increasingly, um, well, who are really ahead of us in this. And so it's not like we're um, we're breaking new ground. All we have to do is to get our, our laws and regulations and practices into compliance with our like-minded allies, put that investment into strengthening our military response in the Indo-Pacific and, um, you know, make it clear to the Chinese regime that we are not going to tolerate the, these kind of illegal activities by their diplomats. I'm sure that CSIS has a fairly long list of, of colleagues of Mr. Zhao Wei who have been doing the same thing. It's not going to be just one of them in the whole 146 Chinese diplomatic cohort here in Canada, which incidentally is 100 more people than Japan has here. They only have 46. So, you know, uh, I think that that's, we've got a bit of a slog, but, you know, this is Canada, and I think the people are getting the message, and I think that we're going to turn this thing to rights. It's just, it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be without costs. Charles, thank you so much for your time this morning. Good to speak with you.